Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. That's why we have these six candles lit here to remind us of the six million Jewish people that perished during the time of the, the, during the time of uh, the Nazi rise to power. It's amazing to think that nearly two thirds of the entire Jewish community of Europe perished. There were nine million Jews in twenty one countries, and of those nine million, six million had their lives taken from them. When you look at a country like Poland, prior to World War II, there was over three and a half million Jewish people residing in Poland. Today, there's probably no more than a thousand. When you consider Albania is the only country, Albania, I think it's near Greece, Yugoslavia, or Yugoslavia doesn't even exist today, does it? But around Greece and Albania, that's the only country that at the end of the war, they had more Jews residing in it than they had prior to the war. Prior to the war, there were about 200 Jewish people living in Albania. At the end of the war, because many Jews were uh, leaving, say, Hungary, and during the final deportations of Jews from uh, Hungary and, uh, and that area, they migrated south or escaped south. And at the end of the war, there were 200 Uh, excuse me, 2,000 Jews in Albania. And that's the only country that had more Jews in it after the war than before the war. These are startling statistics, but they're not merely statistics. These are real people that had lost their lives. These are real men, women, and children uh, who had lost their lives. And so it's important that we not forget. You may not be aware, but over 80 million people were killed during World War II. That's a staggering number, 80 million people. People, most of whom, something like they say 35, 40,000 of whom, more than half or so, were civilians that lost their lives. And so it's important at various intervals of time and history and in our calendar that we take a moment to reflect on these events. For years, you know, when I was a teacher, um, I was given opportunity to teach on the Holocaust at the school I was at. And because I was a teacher teaching on the Holocaust, the Holocaust, the United States Memorial Museum, Holocaust Memorial Museum, every summer they invited professors and teachers to come to the museum. 
and they would close down the museum while we were there, and there would be various scholars that would provide lectures and seminars, and then they would close it to the general public, and we had passes to go wherever we wanted to, to sit as long as we would want at various stations to get as much information and knowledge about the the variety of experiences that sort of describe what the Holocaust was. And uh, if you ever are in D.C., you need to visit that museum. On the one hand, and this is sort of the, uh, the interesting dilemma, on the one hand, it's one of the most beautiful museums you will ever walk through. It's just the architecture is beautiful. It's stunning. The respect and the sense of a reflection on those that lost their lives, Jews and non-Jews alike, are, is incredibly honored in this place, not only by the things that are said, but just by the structure of the building and how it is placed and how you walk through it and what they reveal. And so it's an incredible experience to have. And so it's always been a privilege of mine to visit that museum and to share on the Holocaust. And I, I could talk about this subject for hours and hours, you know, because there's just so much to be said. And there's always new things happening. I don't know if you've read, but just a few months ago, there was an SS officer at 94 years old that was brought on trial. So there are still war criminals that are being brought, quote-unquote, Uh, to justice. And there are still survivors who are enduring, though they are shrinking um, uh, fast. But this year was an interesting one for me as I began to reflect on the Holocaust. I'm not sure why, but it has been a more difficult uh, time of reflection for me as I've been thinking about all the, the facts and the statistics and basically what I wanted to share. Often when it's been on this occasion, you know, I would come up and I have some things I wanted to talk about. And this year, it was a little more difficult for me. And I think one of the reasons why is because in my library, I can't even remember how this came to be, but an individual had given me copies of letters that, and I can't remember if it was her daughter or if it was her that she gave it to me, but this was these letters of an army nurse who served at the tail end of World War I in both France and Germany in 1945, 44 through 45. And she had a series of letters that she sent home to her family from the time she landed to the time she ended her, her stay in Europe. And so one occasion I was speaking on the Holocaust and this person came up and said, I'd like to have this copy of this stuff. And so here are the letters that she wrote. And on her um, journey, she was deployed to Dachau and after it was liberated by the United States Army. And these letters... She doesn't get into any graphics. She only states, I can't even begin to tell you how horrific this camp is. The conditions of it, the conditions of the people. I can't believe I am here in the midst of this. She never describes what it is she sees. She, only, she doesn't want her family to hear the things that she was encountering directly. And among her letters there were, was a two-page testimony of 
things that one of the inmates there had seen. It was the letters, or I should say a two-page document that contained the testimony of a man by the name of Stanislav Zamichnik. And he had just died in 2011 when he was 88 years old. But when he was 17, as a teenager, he joined the Czech resistance. And he, and that, that he joined that when Germany invaded Czechoslovakia. When he attempted to leave the country, he was arrested and he was deported to Dachau, 17 years old. And he was deported there in 1941. And he remained there until its liberation in 1945. And in the camp, he worked in the infirmary. And during that time, he risked his own life to procure drugs for his dying fellow inmates. He helped hide prisoners who were selected to be murdered and personally witnessed the cruel medical experiments that went on in Dachau. If you ever go to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, they have this whole section just devoted to the medical experiments that went on in Dachau. What's nice about the museum, you don't have to look at any footage or anything you don't want to see. They have things in front of them. But if it's something you're interested in, you want to learn more about... You can walk behind the barriers and to see what you want. So it's not invasive. You know, after a while, this stuff gets heavy. And so you say, well, how much more of this do I really want to look at? Well, you don't have to look at any more of it. But um, there are some things that, that chronicle for evidentiary purposes what had transpired. And so this individual who had worked in the infirmity and saw all these things, upon his liberation, he wrote down what he saw. And, you know, I had not read through these letters that I have or this documented testimony until in preparation for today. And as I'm reading it, you know, can I really read this? I don't think I ever read it before. And the weightiness, the disturbing disturbance of it. And I've read tons of things, as we all have seen many things. But for some reason, it was just so much, I couldn't even finish what I was reading. And um, now, we don't need to go into great detail about Dachau. There are so many camps. You know, now, statistics are changing all the time. You realize these labor camps, there were over five, six, seven thousand of them. And there were over 800 of them right in Germany itself. In the past, they said, well, we didn't know it was off in the woods or whatever. But now we know that those things are not true. Many of them were right done right in the center of town. Well, Dachau was a major center. And the camp was an armament uh, factory prior to the Nazis' takeover. And they transformed it into a prisoner camp. It's the longest camp in existence. You may not realize this, but it opened in 1933, one year after Hitler took power. It did not close its doors until 1945 when the United States Army marched in and liberated the camp. So it operated for all of those years, all of those years. And it was the hub for medical experimentation. And so when I had an opportunity back in, you know, I kind of lose count here, but maybe it was, I don't even remember, maybe it was 2000 and something, when I visited my friend Brian, my sailing buddy, who is oftentimes in Germany, uh, he works for uh, pain research labs, and he designs software for computers for the researchers to work with animals that are used in uh, discovering means by which pain can be alleviated. 
And it's a very humane way that they utilize these resources. But one, some, one uh, fall, he invited me to come out to visit with him there in Germany. And so I had traveled to Germany, and we rented a Mercedes, and we drove all over Germany and Poland and Austria to visit the concentration camps. It was one of the strangest vacations I've ever had. I mean, there were these moments of, it was so great to see you, Brian. We're in Germany, man, driving the Autobahn 150 miles an hour. This is nuts. And then we get out of our car and we say, can you believe this, that people did this to other people? You know? And it's fairly sanitized because it's not like it was back then. In any case, um, just some statistics about Dachau that you might not be aware of, but in the immediate after, aftermath of Kristallnacht, which took place in November 1938, the night of broken glass when all Jewish stores and things were destroyed. You may not have known this, but 10,000 Jewish men were arrested and placed in Dachau. At the time of its liberation, this is interesting as well, 65,000 prisoners were incarcerated there. 20,000 of them were Jewish. In addition, as the the United States Army was approaching Dachau, 7,000, mostly Jews, were forced on a death march. And when the United States Army came into Dachau, on the outskirts, they found over 30 railroad cars that were filled with the bodies of dead and decomposing corpses. In an attempt to make some sense of what transpired, this is like, how do you begin to make sense of this? But I recently read an interview of, by Professor David Eisenbach. David Eisenbach, he's, uh, he is a professor of history at Columbia University. He also teaches some classes at the Manhattan School of Music. He's an expert in media and politics. So he's oftentimes interviewing um, political candidates and things of that sort. Well, he had sat down with, being a New Yorker, he sat down with Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, who pastors Redeemer Church in Manhattan. And he asked him this, at the end of 12 years of religious education, I was an atheist. The sticking point in all that regarding religion for me was the Holocaust. I looked at that and I said, how is it possible that 6 million people could be exterminated in the course of a war that took 80 million lives and there could be a God? How do you answer that question? And I love what Keller responds. He says, really, the right response to anyone who is in the middle of suffering is silence, if only Job's friends realize that. But if the right response to anyone who is in the middle of suffering is silence and love and speaking when spoken to. But I actually don't believe it makes it any easier to handle or face suffering by disbelieving in God. If there is no God, you and I, he said to David Eisenbach, you and I got here through stronger organisms and eating the weaker organisms by natural selection. Now, deep in our hearts, we feel, no, that's not right. But the question is, why do we feel that's not right? On what basis am I morally outraged if I'm an atheist? And so he says, from an atheistic point of view, I don't have a real cogent warrant for saying this has absolutely got to stop, other than I simply don't like it. 
And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If we have no objective moral standard that we all are accountable to, how can we say the Nazis were wrong? I mean, that's their opinion. We don't have any cogent reason for saying it is wrong and it ought to be stopped and I ought to lay down my life to stop it. Unless there's a moral compass somewhere, unless there's a moral standard somewhere to which we are all accountable. And if an atheist does not have such a moral standard, well, then he can't be outraged by these things. And therefore, Tim Keller says, not believing in God doesn't make it any easier to deal with the suffering that is in the world, and particularly the suffering that was manifested during the time of the Holocaust. But let me just share two thoughts with you very quickly as I think about the variety of events that sort of um, characterize what we know as the Holocaust. The first thing I'd say is this, the wages of sin is death. Humanity's very nature is corrupt, it's warped, it's distorted, it's perverted. We are not what God originally created us to be, nor intended us to become. It was G.K. Chesterton that said, what's wrong with the world? And he responded by saying, I'm what's wrong with the world. In fact, this is what Paul says, right? Because in Romans chapter 3, when he strings together a number of passages from the Hebrew Scriptures, he reminds us there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away to have, uh, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. David writes, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. Now, how is that possible? You know, and the reason that's possible is because we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, right? So Paul says, even when I was born, I'm already a sinner. And I haven't even sinned yet. (laughs) Because we're not sinners by sinning. We sin because we're sinners. So surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Isaiah says the same. Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Jeremiah says the same. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So one thing we need to realize is that there is suffering in the world. There are holocausts in the world. And while we focus, while we focus on the Holocaust that occurred for the Jewish people during World War II, it's very fascinating too to think of the think of it this way: is that of course that's not the only Holocaust that's ever been experienced by a people. It's not the only Holocaust. It doesn't minimize it. It's a unique one, I think. But nevertheless, we need to remember that what the Jewish people had endured in the Holocaust is a microcosm of what many peoples in the course of history have experienced on different occasions. And, um, but what is fascinating to me and something uh, that I would take pride in as a Jew, perhaps, is that at the United States Memorial Museum, they were the first people to draw attention to what was happening in Darfur. 
Why? Because the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum is not just about what happened to the Jewish people. It's about what happens to any people who are marginalized and persecuted and not honored for who they are. In other words, it's really a memorial to the sinfulness of mankind, whether against Jews, although that's principally the purpose of the museum, but not exclusively. I sound like I'm in a Messianic congregation. We're about Jewish things, but not exclusively about Jews, also Gentiles. You know? It's like whatever we talk about, we always got to cover our bases, dot our I's and cross our T's. But they were the first to draw public attention to what was happening in Darfur. You know, I think we should be really proud of that and certainly proud of it as Americans because it was a museum in the United States of America. But there were other holocausts. You know, the Armenians that suffered over a million uh, casualties due to the Turks, though they've never admitted to it, but nevertheless it's true. Think of what happened in Cambodia. Think of what has happened in Africa. Think of what's going on with ISIS right before our eyes. There are holocausts that are brewing, growing, and not being contained. Now, having said that the wages of sin is death and all of these things are the result of sin, this doesn't mean, I don't mean to say that as a consequence we all act like Nazis or perpetrate that kind of evil. Although it's also true that had there not been those that were merely apathetic bystanders, what one author refers to as Hitler's willing um, Hitler's willing executioners, not talking about those in the camps, but those that were neighbors, those that owned stores, those that were fellow teachers or colleagues or business people who remained silent at a time when they needed to stand up and have their uh, words counted. Apathy uh, can lead to such things if we're not careful. So I don't mean to say that because we're all sinners, we all will necessarily act like Nazis or perpetrate such evils, but we can contribute to it even by simply doing nothing and standing on the side. It does mean, however, that we all have lurking within us the capacity to do so if the opportunity arose. And because the wages of sin is death, we all are in need of a Savior. And this is the second point. We all need a Savior. And that Savior is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That Savior is the mysterious one who is Echad, a unity. That one who is Avinu Malkeinu, our Father and our King. Yeshua, Messiah, the Son of David, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And so you ask, how do you know this? And it led me to read of one instance. You may be familiar with, now I don't know any French. And uh, it, it, I, would, I would read this. This is the way I'd read it if I was home. I'd say, Jean Baptiste de Boyer. Yeah. But I guess it's Jean Baptiste. <laughs> but in Jersey, you know, we don't know from this, though. Jean Baptiste de Boyer, the Marquis de Argens. I don't know. How do you pronounce A-R-G? The French, they don't make any sense to me. Except with the fries. I get that. I, it's not just me, yeah. Anyway, he was the marquee, which means, and I never knew what it meant, so I figured I better look this up. But a marquee is someone that is a little higher than a count. He's a nobleman. And he was a French philosopher and writer. He lived from 1701 to 1771. He was a friend of Voltaire's, you know, who was a, uh, 
I don't know if I, he was a deist. And he was a friend, a close friend of Moses Mendelssohn. If you go to Berlin, when we were there, we saw the opening of what was called the first time in the history of Germany. And by the way, Jews lived in Germany since the time of the Crusades. You know, there are tombstones in Germany that go all the way back to like 1000, time of the Crusades. Jews were not foreigners in Germany. Many of the Jews that were there during the Holocaust were there longer than some of the Germans that were there. I mean, they were German too. They were just German Jews. But um, in- interestingly enough, um, if you go to Berlin, first time in their history, they opened up what was called the Museum to the Jewish People. And it chronicles the history and contribution that the Jewish people have made to Germany. And they opened the museum, which was on the, where the building, where the SS headquarters was held. And so you walk through it, and you see all these Jewish stuff, you know, Torah scrolls and all kind of Jewish objects. And you learn about the Jewish people, such as Moses Mendelssohn. And this man... Jean-Baptiste de Boyer, the Marquis of de Argens. He was close friends with both men like Voltaire and Moses Mendelssohn. He was invited to the court of Frederick the Great. And he spent the better part of his career there. And Frederick the Great asked him, Can you give me one irrefutable proof for the existence of God? By the way, um, the Marquis de Argens... Jean-Baptiste, he became a believer, and he was thrown out of France, which was a Catholic country, because of his, um, uh, his coming to faith and his rejection of Catholicism. So he was a refugee. And Frederick the Great in Germany or Prussia had welcomed him into his court. He was just going to be a philosopher, an advisor to him since... He was a philosopher. And he asked him, can you give me one irrefutable proof for the existence of God? For he was a religious man. And the marquis responded, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews is your irrefutable proof for the existence of God. How so? Well, throughout its history, the Jewish people have faced Pharaohs, Hamans, Hitlers, and Hamas. They have faced nations both ancient and modern who have sought to destroy them. They have faced Muslim conquerors, crusaders, inquisitors, Islamic terrorists, and yet the Jewish people still remain. Mark Twain, uh, interestingly, also had wrote an essay entitled Concerning the Jew. And it's it's a very long essay, but when it comes to its conclusion, he writes... Concerning the Jew, he could be vain of himself and not be ashamed of it. Yes, he could be excused for it. He wrote, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian arose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held the torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, 
no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert, aggressive mind. Twain write, all things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What, and this is how he ends the essay, what is the secret of his immortality? Well, it is a telling question, isn't it? You know, Assyrians, a very small minority community. Persians, there's no empire here, although Iran might try to defer, you know, make us think differently. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, you know, they're all marginalized. And here in 2000, forget about the time of Abraham, forget about the time of Moses, 2016, they are the center on the world stage of history. And not just as a military might, but as contributors, not only endurers of persecution, but contributors to our society and to our world. I'll never forget, by way of contributing, I'll never forget years and years ago when I was working with Chosen People Ministries and I was traveling around going to various churches and I was down in South Carolina. What's a Jewish kid from Jersey doing in South Carolina? And I was in South Carolina and I was uh, hosted by a man who was the president of an actuarial society. You know, actuaries are the ones that come up with all the, uh, what do you call them, statistics for life insurance and all. And he said, he asked me two questions. It was very interesting. He said to me, first of all, do you, are, do you, why are you involved in the work that you're involved in? And I said, I feel called to it. I feel God has called me to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. He says, are you certain that that's what you feel God has called you to? I said, I'm absolutely certain. That is what God called me to. The moment I asked the Lord into my life, he said, I want you to tell the Jewish people about the good news of Messiah. And the first people I told were my parents. And that's what I've been about from that time when I was 17 years old to the present, whether I was teaching in the school and bringing the Jewish people into my students' lives whether I was pastoring a church that wanted to know more and more about their Jewish roots or whether I was in Jewish missions or whatever it was that I was doing, that was always the heart and soul of what my calling is. And he said, you know, that's very good because uh, workers in the religious field are, have some of the shortest lifespans, <laughs> you know, and that's a, a real rough field to go into. So unless God's calling you, I wouldn't recommend it. But he said to me, you know, in my presentation, I was talking about contributions Jewish people have made to society over history. And he told me, you left out one that is of the utmost uh, critical nature. I said, yeah, what is that? He said, the Jewish people were the ones that, inv- that invented the handshake. I said, really? He said, yeah, they're the ones that, that invented the handshake of a deal because they could never sign contracts in the Middle Ages because they were never part of a guild system in which they could get into occupations that the non-Jewish community was permitted to get into. And so how did you know if a contract was going to be binding? They would just shake their hands on it because there was no guarantee that a person would keep their word. They only hoped that they would keep their word, and the shaking of the hand was an indicator that they would. I said, gee, I I didn't know that. But yes, that's what he had told me. I suppose it's true. It seems true enough. But, you know, just recently I read an article that uh, on, I think it was the 21, I think it was 21 major contributions Israel is making to the world. 
one of which is a water conservation system that is now in operation here in California. I didn't read the whole article on that, but I did read the whole article on another interesting invention that the, that the state, that's coming out of Israel that the Israelis have invented. And it made me cry. I couldn't believe it when I was reading about this. They have developed a device that will be on the public market, I think, this summer. It'll cost about $2,500. A device that you clip on to your glasses that as a, if you are completely blind, you, read, you put on your, these, or you have just limited vision, you put on the glasses, and with this device attached to it, it will read and tell you everything that's in front of you. They said for the first time, a blind person can take a bus and go wherever they want without having to be dependent upon another person to tell them where the bus is going. Can you tell me what bus this is? No, they put on these glasses with the thing, and it'll tell them bus number whatever it is. It'll say it into the ear. For the first time, they had blind people, completely blind people, shopping in a supermarket by themselves because the technology is so incredible, it can actually read small print. This one guy who was blind, they said, they were testing it out. They gave it to him, and they gave him a newspaper to read. And for the first time in his life, he had the newspaper read to him without having to depend upon another person to read it to him. All because of this device that attaches to one's glasses that it will read these things for you. They said the algorithms and the complexities thing are incredible because of all the different things it has to pick up. Size, shape, print, colors, and all that kind of stuff. Big things, small things. It will tell you what objects are in front of you while you are walking. You know, if that's the only thing they contribute, you'd say, this is a people that we ought to be nice to. Because look at what they're doing for us. Or what has come out of that country. What is the secret of their immortality. They don't go away. And not only do they not go away, they continue to make a positive difference in our society, in our world, wherever they are. That's not to say every Jewish person is a good person. But it is to say there is something unique about this people that God has chosen for himself. And so why the Marquette there again said what he said, one irrefutable proof It's the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. And so, indeed, the real issue is not why is it that the Jewish people have faced so much hatred over the generations. No, the real issue is how is it that the Jewish people have faced so much hatred over the generations and survived? And not just survived, but have blossomed and grown. Think of the Holocaust Two-thirds of the European Jewish community and what comes out of it? The state of Israel. And at the very time that Israel is established as a state, they are attacked by all of its Arab neighbors. And yet they're able to withstand and defend themselves. Why? Because it is not they who are fighting for themselves. It is the Lord who is fighting for them. And that's why I had us turn to Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, which says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. And you know what you do with an inheritance? You protect it. You guard it. You cherish it. You love it. You honor it. And so God has chosen his people for himself. 
And they are not just a people for himself. They are his inheritance. And so why is it that they, what is the secret of their immortality? It is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is the secret of their ability to contribute so positively throughout the course of its history? It is God, because he has empowered them, and he has strengthened them, and he has wanted to have his people distinct from all of the people so that they would see this people and see something unique about them that can only be attributed to God so that they might come to him. That's why God called the descendants of Abraham that they might be that pointer to the true one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his son, the Messiah of Israel, who's given his life a ransom for many. Malachi 3.6 says this, Because I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you sons of Jacob will not be consumed. That's why they are who they are. That's why they've endured what they have endured, and that's why they can contribute to what they can contribute. I'll never forget when my good friend Arnold Fruchtenbaum was providing a lecture over at Austin at University of Texas in Austin. And the title of his message was How to Destroy the Jews. And he said there were some Jewish people picketing outside, but most of the people who came were Arabs because they wanted to find out how, this was back in the city, how to destroy the Jews. And so as Arnold was, was sharing, he read this passage. He said, it says, first of all, that uh, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So Arnold, through his message, he was showing how various attempts were made by the pharaohs, the Hamans, the various nations in an attempt to destroy the Jews. And he said, that's not the way to destroy them. And so one of the Arab fellows stood up and said, well, tell us, what's the way already? And he said, well, Jeremiah tells us. He said he would make a covenant with them. And then he says, this is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. So he says, so if you want to destroy the Jews, you have to destroy the sun, moon, and the stars. You have to destroy the planets and you have to measure the universe from end to end. Only then will you be able to destroy the Jewish people. Why? Because they are God's people. And while the Hitlers may have attempted to kill six million, God will preserve his people from the day he has called them to the day he brings them into his kingdom. And so the Arab fellow stood up and said to Arnold, there must be an easier way. And he said, there is no easier way. But there is a way to be blessed by them and not to have to be hateful toward them. 
if you want to be blessed by them, even though they've given great things to our world, the greatest blessing they have given is Messiah Yeshua, right? And Paul says that, right? That he says in Romans chapter 9, what a great, what a great passage. In Romans chapter 9, he says, My heart's desire, chapter 10, he says this, but I love the passage. My heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. And he says, theirs is the adoption of sons, because God chose them for his own peoplehood, for his own purposes. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs are the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praise. So what is Paul saying? All these good things have come to us through them. And most importantly, the Savior of the world has come from his people Israel. And so as we think about Yom HaShoah, we honor and reflect on those that lost their lives and the countless many of rescuers that risked their lives and lost theirs to save Jewish people. Last year, I talked about one of our, the rescuers. While all that is so, we also need to reflect on the antidote to such hatred. And the antidote is the Messiah of Israel, who, as we said during the Lord's Supper, is free for the receiving and is free in terms of gaining all the benefits of eternal life and can transform us into a people who glorify His name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.